is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Juliana Boring, an ultra-endurance cyclist, best-selling author, and children's rights activist. Juliana's life story is one of triumphing over adversity. Raised in a cult known as the Children of God, she developed the necessary survival skills of resilience and adaptability from a young age, qualities that would prove instrumental to her future achievements. After escaping the cult at the age of 23, Juliana wrote the book, Not Without My Sister, which contributed to the group's eventual demise in 2010. It was while building a new, radically different life for herself in the wake of all this, that Juliana reconnected with an old flame, an explorer named Hendry, who, during an expedition in the Congo, was pulled from his kayak by a crocodile. His body was never recovered. Reckless with grief and determined to make the most of her one precious life, Juliana embarked on her first ultra-endurance ride, an 18,000-mile journey through 19 countries, which she completed in just 152 days, earning her a world record. In this episode, Juliana discusses using mental fortitude to push through physical pain and meet her goals, learning to put faith and trust in strangers, and being coerced into rum-fueled evenings in Australia in exchange for free accommodation. Normally, my opening question is where did your love of travel originate? But that doesn't feel like the right question to ask you, given that everything I know about your background, (laughs) and I know that you had an unconventional childhood. Could you talk a bit about that and about your experiences growing up? Yes. I was born and raised in a religious sect called the Children of God, who later changed the name to the Family International. And it was um, a very unusual childhood. From the age of three, I was Basically, I became property of the group, and my parents handed me over. I was shipped around with random strangers, random adults within the group. They believed that children born and raised in the group were everybody's children, so uh, there was no attention given to private families and your own individual parents, children, relatives, or whatever else. So uh, I grew up all over the world, from mostly between Asia and Africa, I'd say over 30 countries around the world. So yeah, there was no originally love of travel. It was just rather enforced travel. But once you traveled your whole life, it's very hard to stop traveling. Right. And how did you cope with being kind of untethered from that nuclear family and that sense of, of home and security? I guess it was already because most children born into the group never really were given that sense of a nuclear family. So I don't think I ever grew up with that sense in the first place. So I just remember childhood of very, being often very alone in the sense that I didn't know who I could go to for help or for safety, or I always felt very um, scared, uh, insecure, you know, all the all the terms you can think of, of an abandoned child, basically. I heard a lot of stuff about the children of God and yeah, I can't, and they're disbanded now, right? In part because of a book that you wrote. Yes. Yes. Uh, in 2010, I think due to the the negative publicity around our book, the death of the cult leader, he committed murder-suicide. And then all of the, our generation were born and raised. We are the second generation. We all kind of came together online and rose up against them and, and worked together to bring them down. So I think that with the advent of the internet, it changed a lot because the information was out there. They couldn't hide anymore. And so they lost membership. They lost money. And it got to the point where they couldn't really survive anymore. So they had to disband and go out. Well, they called a leader and told them all to go out and live normal lives. And at least for us, it was a victory. And my brothers and sisters could you know, grow up normal, well, semi-normal life and pursue their own dreams and goals and go to school and, you know, have friends outside and all of that. So the kind of things that I was deprived of in my childhood. So that was probably the best outcome we could have hoped for. How old were you when you left the cult? I was 23, I believe. I mean, (laughs) I was kind of living a double life for a while. Uh, I was always considered a rebel from the time I was a teenager. I was 
rebelling in all sorts of ways. And I think by the time I became uh, of age, they wished I would leave because I was causing them so much trouble. But I refused to go by that stage because of well, my younger brothers and sisters were still in. I didn't want to leave them behind. Um, so I was raising the last the last six of them. And then finally, at the end, I realized I could do more good for them on the outside than the inside. So I finally left. But yeah, so I was kind of living a double life for quite a while. I would, I would stay in the commune in the day and then I would go out and party at night. And I was making my friends and contacts on the outside. So when I did finally leave, I already had pretty well established myself uh, in the outside. Say as far as knowing people and having a community already outside waiting for me, so that helped. I was going to say, when that's all you've ever known, it must be a huge step to transition out and then build a radically different life from the ground up. But it sounds like you were already laying the foundations for that in some sense. Yeah, I was. Well, I was never a true believer, so no matter how much they tried to indoctrinate me into this strange beliefs that they had, I I just wasn't buying it because it just didn't make sense to me and. Because I questioned, that's why they were always punishing me, and that's why I rebelled even more. So it was, <laughs> it was rather self-defeating on their part. <laughs> they should have just let me be. <laughs> why do you think you were so resistant to, to the belief system that they were trying to indoctrinate you with? I don't know. I always had a very um, analytical, questioning mind, and, and I, I saw a lot of things that didn't add up or didn't make sense, and there were so many contradictions. And they used the Bible scripture a lot to justify whatever they wanted to what make people do and wanted you to believe. But then for every Bible verse that they used to back up this belief or this claim or this prophecy, whatever they wanted to call it, there was always another 10 that could counteract that. So because I knew the Bible so well, I was just quoting it back to them, the verse that would contradict that verse. And they had no answer, so it got very angry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. And were you the oldest child in your family? No, I was little. So there's 18 of us, but I didn't grow up with any of my siblings. I grew up well with guardians and foster parents in the group. I mean, they moved me almost every year. And by the time I was five, they put all the children into these giant training camps because they wanted us all indoctrinated to be the perfect little cult addicts. And so I grew up just in these huge training centers full of children. Yeah. So it was random adults caring for us. Oh my God, it's crazy. So what happened when you came out? What did life look like for you at that point? Uh, when I first came out, I was in Uganda at the time. And I walked out with no money, nothing. I had just my passport. Did you tell them you were going or was it like an escape in the middle of the night type situation? No, by that stage, we were living quite independently with just a few other members and my father and my, my brothers and sisters. And he actually, he informed me that one of my sisters had committed suicide. And I said to him, well, I had a big falling out then. I said, well, it's, it's your fault because, you know, you were not there as a father. And she, she fell into drugs and all of that. And she she just was so sad, so depressed that she didn't want to live anymore. And he's happy to say that she's better off. Basically, he said she's better off dead than uh, a drug addict and, you know, an embarrassment and all of that. So I just went in my room, packed up my bags and walked out. I said, that's it. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I, I had friends already on the outside. So I stayed with one friend for a couple of weeks. And it was just the most liberating feeling in the world. I didn't have my day scheduled. I didn't have a every hour controlled and programmed and I could do what I wanted. And so it was that feeling of I could breathe. Um, but then at the same time, overwhelming understanding that I didn't know anything and I had, you know, no formal education. I didn't know how to write a CV. I had no bank account. I had no money. I had nothing. And it was really like an alien landing. It was hard. The first year was really, really tough. But so I got a job running a nightclub, which my friend helped me to get. She helped me to write my CV. She helped me to it. <laughs> and uh, I got myself a little apartment and I was, yeah, I was doing quite well. And, and that's when I started to write, uh, not without my sister. For me, it was a kind of self-therapy, a way to process everything that happened to me, to my family, to an entire generation of children and, and make sense of it all. And then to figure out, you know, what I did believe out of all of that and what I thought for myself and what I wanted from life. And when I spoke to my two, two of my sisters, my closest sisters, they 
we're like, you know what? We were also thinking to write a book because we need to set the record straight because the group was trying to whitewash and rewrite their history and say none of it happened, none of the abuse happened. And so, yeah, so we, we got together and we got a book deal very quickly. And it all just <laughs> happened very fast. So I moved to England to write the book with them. And then, yeah, from there, you know, it started kind of a snowball effect between media, documentaries, the book. You know, within a few years, the cult had disbanded. Incredible. It must have felt wonderful when you finally heard the news that they disbanded. Oh, it was it was possibly the best. I mean, I had not expected it to happen so quickly. I hadn't even... All we had really wanted was some accountability and some reparation for the damages done for all the children who were born in the group. And that might, you know, that they would loosen up the rules so that my, you know, our the children who were still in, our brothers and sisters, but all of the children still in could go to school, could get, you know, an education, could have access to medical care, all the things that we didn't have, the basic human rights. And um, so that was our main primary goal of writing this book. So the fact that they so quickly were forced to disband and failed on a massive level uh, was the, possibly the biggest victory, definitely unexpected. And it was a relief to me too, because you know after we wrote the book, our father cut me off and all of us off from our brothers and sisters. We were demonized. Uh, we he basically told them all kinds of horrible lies about us. They were terrified of me. It was broke my heart. I couldn't call them. I would call and they would hang up the phone. They changed the phone number. I couldn't see them anymore. So that for me was the worst part of it all. And I thought, why was it worth it in the end to lose my, you know, the last of my family for that? But so when, you know, when the group disbanded and uh, we eventually got back in touch with them all, that was, yeah, it was a wonderful outcome in the end. I'm sure there's so many people who are so grateful to you now because I mean, I don't really know all the ins and outs. I haven't actually, I really want to read your book. I definitely know the name of your book. I was like, oh, I know this book. But I, I can't believe we're obviously going to talk about a completely different trip that's unrelated to this in many ways. I was like, this woman has lived such a like wild life and just done so many incredible things. You really throw yourself into everything and have a deep sense of determination, which I'm sure is related to your childhood in many ways. Yeah, I think when you have suffered a lot, you appreciate everything more, maybe. Mm. Uh, everything I've been given now, I'm I'm so grateful. Everything I have in life, I'm. I think life is beautiful, and every day I wake up and you know I look in my garden and I look out to sea and and I just have to be. I just have to say thank you. I mean, I would never grow up as a child. It was so bleak. There were times I wanted really. I, I tried to kill myself a couple of times, and I never in a million years have thought would have thought that uh, that life could end up this way. So I mean, I appreciate every day so much. So changing tax a little bit, in 2009, you got in touch with an old flame. What was it about this connection with him that felt so special? We had a very strange connection from the very first, I, the first time I met him, I was, it was when I was living in Uganda and it was actually where I was, I was still in the cult at the time, but as I said, living double life. So I was out partying one night in a nightclub and we just locked eyes across the room and, and we walked to each other and it was almost like, hi, there you are. And Every time we met, it was this kind of surreal connection where we, we didn't even have to kind of catch up or say much. It was like we just picked up where we left off. And it was a very intense relationship we had off and on. He was a South African explorer. So he was kayaking down like source to sea from the, the Blue Nile, the White Nile, um, he was doing all kinds of expeditions in the Congo. So, you know, when he would come back from the expedition, I would see him briefly. So it was very random when we would meet. And it was never planned. It was always just, it would happen. It was like, I was waiting for you. Like, there, oh, there you are. But so when I left to the UK to write the book, we lost contact. And I changed, obviously, location, number, everything. And my whole life changed. And so much happened in that period that within around a five-year period, we lost touch. So I saw him again on Facebook and I was like, there's Henry. <laughs> and I sent him a message, hey, how are you? And, you know, so and we basically just picked up where we'd left off, except it was a very, I think we had both gone through a lot in the interim and we had come to a kind of a new place in life and a new understanding of things. So our conversations, you would chat almost every day, our conversations took on a much deeper sort of subject matter and more 
I don't know, we talked about everything. We did a lot about life, about struggle, about loneliness, about things that people who have gone through crazy lives talk, end up talking about. And then in the end, we decided that we, you know, we were going to try and, and make a go of it. After all this time, we were like, I think we were both had been kind of waiting for the other. And so we agreed we were going to meet for New Year's. And he was off on an expedition with a couple of Americans for three months in the Congo. And when um, he was away, did you, you weren't able to have contact with him? He was off the grid. He was, he was off the grid because there was, yeah, obviously in the middle of the jungle, there was no Wi-Fi. But I did get, I got online with him, say the 3rd or 4th of December. And it was just random. I went on Skype and he happened to have gone to a guest house where they had stopped for this one, you know, for a couple of days while they were waiting for a visa pass or something to get past a certain point. And he, he managed to get online. And we said, we managed, we got online at the exact same time. And he was like, oh, thank God, I was hoping I would catch you. And so we had a, a very last intense conversation. Can't wait to get to you. And, you know, just a few hippos and some rhinos between us. And I'll be there for New Year. I can't wait and all of that. And that was the last time I spoke to him. And then a few days later, he was taken by a crocodile while they were kayaking down the river. And uh, they never found him. That was it. It just, he went under and it was gone. And I found out over Facebook. It was just, after all of the loss and all the many people I loved and lost in life, I think that was possibly one of the hardest for me to bounce back from. I just was done. I just, <laughs> it was the last person I really, really loved and he was gone. And I just went, it, my world went dark. I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see life without him existing in it. I couldn't see a future anymore. I was just tired. I was so done. And I suppose I I took a very drastic step then to save myself because I'm a bit of an extremist. So I, I had to do something to save myself or I didn't know what how I would get out of this deep, dark blackness I was in. So it actually the idea kicked in while I was at his memorial. Uh, so I, anyway, I had the ticket out to Uganda. So I took the ticket anyway. And I was there at New Year and they had the memorial. They had it the week of the, the next, the New Year. And while we were there, there was a few friends who were sitting around the campfire that night. And one of the girls was talking about how life is so unpredictable and fragile. And you don't know from one day to the next how much time you've got and you think you've got all the time in the world and, and then it's done. And she was like, she, I guess everyone was talking about what they would like to do in life, sort of bucket list idea, you know. And she was like, oh, I'd love to go and cycle across Canada. It's always been a dream cycle across Canada. And she turned to me and she said, would you like to go with me? Let's go cycle across Canada. And I had already driven across Canada. So I was like, mm, well, I've kind of seen Canada, so it doesn't really interest me. Mind you, I never cycled in my life, but I don't know why it got me onto this idea. Well, if I ever wanted to cycle somewhere, where would I cycle? And from there, I went on the internet and started looking at, you know, long cycle journeys and came across the men who had cycled around the world, including Mark Beaumont and, you know, all of the, you know, the original world cyclists, of which there were very few. And at the time, I think only maybe four or five. And that's when I also saw that never been a woman cycled around the world or circumnavigated the world consecutively nonstop. And I was like, it's 2011. Why not? Why has no woman ever done it yet? That's very odd. But it got me thinking, I was like, I'm going to go cycle around the world. And I don't think it was really even a well thought out idea. It just, it's just something just I knew I had to do like that. I was decided. And when I, once I decided something, that's it. It's time. <laughs> It's like all or nothing at all. So I was all in. And of course, everyone tried to talk me out of it. They're like, you don't even know how to cycle. I was like, don't worry. I went home. I got a bicycle, like just the crappy city bike, you know, heavy city bike. And I just started pedaling it every day. And every day I was taking a little further, a little further. And within, you know, six, seven months, I was doing 200 kilometers a day. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, I was looking for sponsors. I was hoping that, you know, I didn't really have the money to do it, but I was hoping that you know, I could get a sponsor, but not, no one came through. And at the time I was very annoyed, but of course, in hindsight, looking back, I was like, well, why would you throw money away for someone who's never cycled? It's just it's going to go, we're going to go cycle around the world. You're like, yeah, you might make it to the north of Italy, but... <laughs> 
But I did find a local bike making company who loaned me a bike for the trip. So that was already great. <laughs> and uh, I had like about three, four thousand euros in the bank to take. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. It's like no time like the present, right? <laughs> so, uh, and hope someone would pick me up on the way, Amazing. which never did. And, and in, in the end, I mean, I ran out of money. I think it was in New Zealand and got the rest of the way around the world. So people started to follow me online because it was such a mad story. It's just like, this woman has never cycled. She's going to go and make the woman's record. Not only was I making the woman's record, I was always also beating the previous man's record. And I was not a cyclist. And so then everyone started to follow me just out of curiosity to watch the madness go down because there was everything happened to me. You cannot believe from like, by the time I got back, every single part of my bike had been changed because everything broke. And I got sick. I was in the storms. I was just everything. So people started to follow just out of the, the sheer entertainment factor. I imagine. Were you like blogging or this is before like Instagram, was it? I can't even think. What year or was it? There was Facebook. Okay, so Facebook. I was making like little video updates on YouTube and Facebook. And then, yeah, mostly I was just making photo updates on Facebook. And then every country I went to, I would make one video to everyone was to just to tell what, what was happening and et cetera, how many punctures and <laughs> how many magpie attacks and <laughs> all that. <laughs> and so more and more people were following the trip. And, uh, and I had, you know, the map online on my website and people were following me live so they could see my tracker exactly where I was and the route and everything I was doing. So I, I made a video to my to my followers saying, thank you guys for all the moral support and the love. And, and I hope it's been fun for you as it has for me. But, you know, I'm out of money now, so I'm going to be hopefully heading home. I didn't even have the money for a ticket back. <laughs> and within one day, there was like 2,000 euros in my bank account. And everybody started sending like, 50 euros 10 euros 20 whatever they had every month like just give up a few coffees to send it to the juju fund and i didn't even have to ask like people just kept they're just like you have to make it to the end you have to make do it for all of us now like it became like a group project to get me to the end so then i had i've had the emotional investment of many people i couldn't let them down so I had to finish <laughs> That's a good tactic. It really is. I'd love to hear a bit about what your itinerary was and then like how a typical day would play out. How many miles would you cover? How would you figure out where you were going to stop each day? Yeah. Okay. So I went through 19 countries and four continents. And originally, I, every single world cyclist has always gone west to east because of the winds are more favorable that way. But I held off a couple months thinking that I was waiting on this one potential sponsor. And when they finally didn't come through, I was like, great, I have to go now or never. And so then it was a choice of either hitting the monsoon season and, and pedaling like two months of nonstop rain through Asia or going opposite way and just riding 70% headwinds the whole way. <laughs> so I ended up going the headwind way, and which meant some really hard days but really I would I would say in places like New Zealand and Australia there were times even in America when I was going through like 100 kilometer an hour winds and just you know just pedaling and not moving literally and those were really hard depressing days but my main goal was to try and do around 210 kilometers a day so that would mean on a bad day I might make 100 if I couldn't pedal very far and then so then I would have to make it up on another day do like 280 260 270 on other days to try and catch them up so um but just to try and keep an average of 210 a day was my main goal. And I, I, yeah, I did manage to do that. There was no real plan as to where I would spend each night because I never knew where I was going to end up. So I had a little pack on the back, just under the seat, very aerodynamic. And I just carried a spare jersey, um, windbreaker, because it was still summer when I left. And obviously when I got back around going towards Europe going around October, November, I then had to ship some winter gear to myself to pick up on the way. So then my bag got a little fuller there, but mostly it was just tools to fix the bike and lots of tubes. And I had a sleeping bag on me as well. But 
most of the time. Interestingly, well, through Asia and those kind of places, it was so cheap. I could stay in like a little motel, like, you know, eight to ten dollar a night place, which was safer. Through Australia, almost the entire way, people sponsored my accommodations. Friends helped me along the way. People were putting me up. In Australia, I slept in sleeping bags and like shipping containers and bathrooms and stuff like that. Through the null of the choice because, you know, there's... It's so expensive. You cannot believe it's like highway robbery. A bottle of water costs like 20 euros or something in the Nullabur, but you, know, you have no choice. You have to pay. But the funny part was uh, going through the Nullabur. I basically drank my way through it. Not water, whiskey. No, rum. Because they're big on rum in Austria. They make the they make a, quite a good rum there. But so uh, how it happened was I got to, I think, one of the, the first what do they call them? Like little service stations in the middle of the desert. And they're stationed every, like outposts every, I'd say between two to 300 kilometers. So you've got to reach one each day. Or you, you know, you, you don't have food and water, so you've got to stop there. So you're forced to pedal them anyway. And um, I would get to the air to the next one. And they would think, oh, where are you going? What are you doing? Just running are really lovely. And I had some of them just pulling up next to me by the side of the road, seeing me cycling across the Nullarbor, and they're just like, hand me money or like, hand me food or something. They're just so excited to see me, <laughs> to see me doing it. Cause, you know, Australians do appreciate a good sort of adventure or sort of outback. They, they love that whole idea. Of Did adventure. they know who you were or they just were passing by and they thought it was cool? A lone woman like cycling across the Nullarbor. Like if you've ever been across it, you understand why. Like, this is kind of camaraderie between anyone crossing the Nullarbor. You're just like, kudos. And that's in a car. So you see someone on a bike, you're like, oh, man, that's hard. <laughs> so, yeah. So what happened is I would end up at the, the roadhouse and they'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you can take a free bed in the back there. Don't worry about it. And then they're like, but you have to drink with us. <laughs> Fine. So I'd like knocking back shots and they wouldn't let you they wouldn't let you say no so you had to it was all like you know i suffered for this i did because the next day the hangovers were horrible <laughs> and then i had to cycle like, in the horrible like oh hangover for like another 200 300 kilometers and i get to the end and i'd be like the last guy in the, this in this roadhouse said to ask for so and so and the guy would be like yeah that's me he's like he said you might have a bed and he's like absolutely i do but you've got to drink with me <laughs> <laughs> so I basically didn't pay anything through through the Nullabur except I had you know I paid with a hangover the whole way. <laughs> that is rough. You're hardcore. I don't know. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> I didn't have much money. I had to. <laughs> Given that you were in the saddle pretty much every day, do you feel like you got the chance to absorb the places that you were passing through, or were you just sort of laser focused on meeting your goal distance each day? No, I think my highlights were the interaction I had with people along the way. When I started off the trip, I was in a really bad headspace. I was just so sad. I was I would cry on the bike. I would I talk to Henry a lot on the bike. And to be honest, when I left, I was kind of hoping I wouldn't come back. I was in that kind of a headspace. So I didn't I didn't care. I had nothing to lose anymore. But the further I got, the more I kind of came back to life and I think it was the human interaction on the way that helped that a lot. Just the amazing, incredible, kind and generous people that I found. I mean, the world is, we, we see a lot of the bad news and the horrors and the bad people or the what makes the news, isn't it? But we never hear about the good people. And that's actually, I'd say 99%. <laughs> Maybe I'm being optimistic, but I have traveled quite a bit in the world. And the more I travel, the more I meet and encounter just good people. And I probably don't agree with half of their political ideas or their religious ideas or or even maybe the way they, you know, they speak to their wife or their children. You know, I, I probably have a lot to say about what they what they do and don't do. But I think when you when you meet a stranger on the road and you can just just be generous and curious, I, I think that there's something in all humans, there's a goodness in all humans, you know. We're not all 100% bad, we're not 100% good, but I think that we err to the side of good more than we do to the bad. Um, and so cycling around the world really did awaken that, well, it restored my faith in humanity because I have seen the best and the worst of humans even growing up as a child. So 
I was able to to see it in all cultures and in, in all types of people, uh, all ages, all ethnicities, all, you know, men, women. I mean, everyone. It was just, it was just beautiful. It was a really, um, yeah, it was an experience. It's hard to put into words. Humbling, I would say, very humbling, because I think we have a very um, self-absorbed sense of our place in the world and who we are and who we think we are. And when you are perpetually the stranger in other people's world and at their kind of at their mercy and their generosity, it humbles you to see your, your place in things and and to also realize that maybe your perspective isn't the only one and not the most important one. <laughs> and, you know, we're all kind of in this great big ship called Earth together. We're all just trying to make sense of things or... You know, we, we just want to get along. We want to we want to have food on the table or roof on our heads and want to feed our families. We want to have self-respect and dignity. And I think that that's across the board, no matter who you are. So, yeah. I feel like that kind of speaks to one of my other questions, which was, you know, the people that I know who've had a difficult childhood, they struggle in one way or another with trust, with issues of trust. And there must have been so many times when you were reliant on strangers for things. And was it hard for you to warm up to people? Like how long did it take for you to have all these realizations that people are all good? I think because of, well, the the world I grew up in, because you never were safe or you never had a, a safe childhood environment to be yourself in or to feel secure, you become very good or I became very good at reading people and being able to understand very quickly what makes each person tick and whether they're, I don't want to say good or bad, but whether they're going to harm me or whether they're going to help me. And it's kind of a trick that you learn to survive. It's a survival mechanism. And so I think I call it now a skill because it's helped me a lot in life going forward. And so going around the world with this skill is very useful because I immediately sense when a person was something strange or off about them, I knew immediately to keep away. And when people did invite me home, I I would always know immediately if they were good or they were not good. This radar that I have is has never, 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 never been wrong. And to this day, I can say I have always been right about a person from the first moment I meet them. So it's something that was really useful around the world. So I mean, if I felt something was off with someone, I just would, you know, find a way to avoid any kind of confrontation. So there was very few times when I felt unsafe on a human level. I like people, so I think that I always want to see the good rather than the bad. And I think I hope I never lose that because uh, it's easy, especially with all the anger and the hate that goes around these days that I see everywhere, and everyone's so on edge, and everyone's looking for a reason to be to fight with someone else about, you know, all the differences. And and I just feel like we need to find the good in people again. You know, we need to look for the good. And and I feel it's easy to lose faith in humanity when you see or you hear some of the things that are happening around us. But yeah, I don't want to lose that faith in humanity. A journey of this magnitude is as much about mental resilience as it is about physical fortitude. I read this thing that you wrote or uh, an interview with you in The Guardian. And you were talking about how you get to that point where your body is telling you like, this is painful, like give up. And you're like, actually, if people dig deep, they have 20% more effort left to give. How did you know like when, okay, it's time to stop? And how do you figure out that you do actually have deeper resources than you than you immediately think? So most people stop at the first pain barrier. Then your brain tells you stop because you're feeling pain. And we don't like pain. We basically do everything in life to avoid pain. But if you can get past that first pain barrier, you can keep going. And it's really your brain that stops you rather than your body. But this is a very hard balance, as you said, to find. And I discovered it more after when I came back from the world cycle, I started to do uh, endurance racing. And I was racing across like continents. Uh, I went across America and Europe and, and these races I started to be interested in that sort of mind-body connection and how far can you push yourself without destroying yourself is a very interesting question because the further you push yourself the more you know you're able to push yourself and so when you start to reach the extreme levels like in some of these races I was doing you know four or five hundred kilometers a day on a broken bike and I was destroying my knees I was destroying myself uh, (laughs) and there's a couple of times when I did go very close to I don't want to say killing myself but heart attack you know, liver failure, these kind of things. So 
I think when I reached that point, I realized that, yes, you can go so much further than you think, but you also have to know when to stop. And that's the hardest thing for an extreme athlete to do because <laughs> your mind is going, you can keep going, no, your body is literally shutting down because your, your brain is the control center. Your body is just the machine, right? And so you're pushing a machine so the machine's starting to smoke and it's burning, but the but you're just like, just a little further, I can take this little bird, you know, and that was the race car trying to break the, the speed limit or whatever, and, and everything's rattling and the dials are shaking, and you're just like, I can do this, I can do this, and then you have to find that point when it's like, okay, you can't go further, your body's going to shut down, stop. But that's, yeah, that's another story for another day, because like, <laughs> I kept pushing my limits for a long time. But at the time, when I went around the world, that was the most I'd ever done. I'm, obviously, I'd never cycled before, and I was doing 200 a day without breaks, without rest for almost five months. So that, for me, was an extreme. I never pushed myself that far in my life. And that was very much, I would say, 70% mind of the matter. So, you know, when you're just miserable, it was raining, there was headwinds. You're covered in mud, you've got diarrhea, and you just said, Why am I doing this? And that's those are the moments when you I, I just learned to take myself out of that immediate misery and, and try and go into a different headspace. And you kind of almost go into a state of meditation where you I would find ways to distract myself, but either in a memory or in a happy place, you know, or in an audiobook. It could be many things, or it could be a beautiful piece of music, and I would just lose, try and lose my brain into that, and forget about the the physical misery for a while. So, yeah, it's a, I guess it's a form of meditation. Did you just know to do that instinctively, or is that something you've you learned somewhere? I think I learned it with trial and error. <laughs> I, I, you know, it gets easier the more the more you suffer, the more you can suffer. So every time you suffer, it becomes easier because you know you just gotta just wait it out, and it eventually passes. You know, this too shall pass. And so if you can bear that, you can keep going. And that's why most people stop because they can't bear to go further. But it's psychological more than physical because you just don't want to be uncomfortable, right? After you're, you know, you put yourself through that kind of physical and mental difficulty or struggle, you also gain a lot of insight into yourself and what you're capable of and gives you a kind of a self-assurance. And also you see the world differently or you see you approach difficulties in life in general dif- differently in, in that you do it's not such a big deal, is it? You know, I think that it's healthy to suffer a little bit. In life. I think we all should accept a bit of suffering. Is that you also can't appreciate then when things are good, can you? If you don't have a contrast, how do you ever know? How do you ever enjoy uh, sitting down with a nice hot cup of coffee if you haven't been, you know, freezing and wet and uh, and just wishing that somewhere in the world there was a bar with a hot coffee so yeah you appreciate everything more it seems like you know all that the training you did before you left the cycling 200 kilometers a day that was obviously really important but in some sense all of the self-trust and the self-assurance that you built up through your difficult past was also really important training in its own way yeah my brain was definitely able to handle a lot because I was so used to being, you know, independent. And anytime I was in a, in a difficult situation, I always had to get myself out of it. So it was the same when I was cycling around the world, when there was, you know, a problem, when the bike broke down, when, you know, I was stuck in the middle of somewhere, I didn't know where I was. There was no map, whatever difficult thing, I, difficult circumstance I found myself in, it was kind of like, well, now how are you going to get yourself out? <laughs> so, Yeah. That resourcefulness and adaptability, definitely. I have to say, I am, I'm very grateful that my childhood gave me that training for it ahead of time. <laughs> so you ended up cycling 18,000 miles through 19 countries in 152 days. You broke yeah. the world record. Yes. Once you got home, I mean, it must have felt incredible, first of all, and all these people who've been backing you, you know, with their uh, well wishes and actual money throughout the journey. It must have felt like you really did them proud. But then how did you envision what was next for you? Because obviously you went on to compete in new races. At what point along the journey were you like, this is me now, I'm going to become an endurance athlete? Oh yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, all I wanted to get home by the end. <laughs> I've had enough. And the funny thing is the whole time I was envisioning like not cycling anymore. And then the moment I got back, I just became depressed because I, I just I couldn't get up in the morning and ride my bike again. And it was a weird anticlimactic sort of few months where 
I lost, I guess you always, always have a bit of a, a kind of an adrenaline every day, being on the bike, seeing new things, you're constantly stimulated. And then suddenly going back to normal life was, it was really difficult. It was waking up every day with kind of feeling purposeless. And also just feeling the weight of, of normality. And, and like I say, like the stupid little things you have to start worrying about again, like, you know, like the bills <laughs> or, you know, just day to day interactions that you just can't cope in the beginning. It's really hard because life becomes so simplified on the bike. It's just eat, sleep and pedal and everything else doesn't really matter anymore. And so it, it's, it's a wonderful simplicity. But then coming back. You really do miss that. So I didn't think I would get into racing. It was Mike Hall who was who had just made the men's record for around the world. We got together, we made good friends, we exchanged stories at the pub. And then he got me into it. He said, Listen, I'm putting on the first race across Europe, unsupported bicycle race across Europe. And you have to join because there's no woman doing it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, Mike, first of all. I'm not a cyclist. He's like, what do you mean? You cycle around the world. I was like, yeah, I did, but I'm not actually a cyclist. <laughs> so I didn't consider myself a cyclist. <laughs> I, I consider a cyclist somebody who's got the right kit, who knows everything about the bike, and is sporty, checks his you know heart rate when he goes on, you know, all of that, and competes in a big group every every Sunday and all of that. That's a cyclist, but I was definitely not that. So, and then of course I was I never raced in my life, and I'm not competitive as far as that goes. So I don't, you know. I don't think that this is for me. And he says, listen, been around the world. All you got to do is cycle across Europe. How hard can that possibly be? And I said, that's true. You have a point. Okay, yeah. He's like, just just give it a go. If you don't like it, it's fine, you know, but try. So I turned up at the start line and I was the only woman. So that was when I started to experiment more with the, how far I could push myself and started to understand my well, what I thought was my limit was not my limit, and I could keep going a little further, a little further. So that race, I think I averaged 300 a day. And then the last day, I pedaled 400 kilometers to get to the finish. And that was the most I'd ever done. And I was like, whoa, I can do 400 kilometers? What? <laughs> and so then that's when I got really into it. So then the next race, I went across the US, it was the Trans Am bike race. It was the inaugural Trans Am bike race. And that race, Mike was also racing it. So he was like, of course you're joining. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> and I think that race, there was only two women. So I was like, one more than the first one. That was good. So I was picking up speed there. And that race was really, for me, eye-opening as far as like what I was talking about, the mind-body connection. The second day of the race, I crashed. I knocked myself out. I broke one of my ribs. And so I pedaled the whole race with this like cracked rib. The pain was horrible. So I was popping um, ibuprofen to keep the swelling down and the pain manageable and kept riding. And then halfway through, the seat post broke. The screw was too worn out to change it. And it couldn't, so I couldn't tighten it. So the seat went all the way down. So I was wrapping duct tape around the seat post to try and hold it up. I think there's like three rolls of duct tape around that seat post. But of course, with my weight, it kept going down, down, down. So I rode half the last half of the race with my seat post all the way down, my knees really up and tons of mountains. So by the end of the race, my knees were like this big and they had to wheelchair me onto the plane. I, I couldn't walk. It was so bad. And then my chain broke in the middle of the Kentucky mountains. Anyway, I got to, by the time I got to the end, I was riding by the second night without sleep, trying to just try to get to the end. And I had been neck and neck with this guy, uh, Jesse, the last, I think, I want to say three days. And he was desperate to beat me because he was a, a professional racer. And like, it would look really bad to the lads if this chick who's only been cycling two years beats him. <laughs> so we were both vying for fourth place. So I said to him, yeah, I, said, I was like, listen, mate, by the end, I had such a bad pinch nerve from sitting in such a bad position for so long. It was running down to like my knee all the way at my back. And I was pedaling with one leg. And I said to him, take fourth, I'll take fifth. Like, I got nothing to prove now. Like, just getting to the end will be, be very happy. And I was crying so hard. And I got, so we were all night, the last night, so we were pedaling. I think I was, I was doing like 800 kilometers by this point without stopping. And, uh, <laughs> and we got to, to daylight Donnie, it was 20 kilometers to the finish and it was all cobbles. And I, I just like, I just looked at it. I was like, I can't, 
I was like, oh, I don't know how I can do this. I can't. I had a cracked rib. I had a pinched nerve. I was just crying. I was like, no. And Mike even sent me a message going because Mike won the race. He was already at the finish line waiting for me. He's like, I would suggest letting some air out of your tires and make the last 20 kilometers a little more comfortable. And I was like, well, I haven't pumped my wheels for the last three days, so I think we're fine. <laughs> So anyway, Jesse's like, hey, my family's waiting at the finish line. I'm just going to go for it. And so I said, yeah, see you there. I'll see you at the finish. And he took off into the sunrise. And just seeing him cresting over the hill, something in me mentally just couldn't let it go. Like after all of this, and I just said to myself, listen, pain is temporary. It's 20 kilometers of pain. How hard can that be? You've done worse. Like, come on. And so I just suddenly got this weird adrenaline second wind kicked in. And I took off after him and chased him down. He saw me coming. He couldn't believe it. And he went sprinting. So we both sprinted the last 20K over these cobbles all the way to the finish. And we rolled in together, fourth place tied. I was like, okay, definitely your brain is the control and your body says i cannot go any further you can go further you can go further and that's when got me uh, really into that whole idea that yeah that's incredible but i love that you came in neck and neck that's like a nice way to finish yeah yeah no he was like oh, well done and mike was waiting for us with beers at the finish that was really good and he was like so proud of that was the best words i heard in my life we all went down for huge pancake breakfast it was great <laughs> Oh, I love that. There's nothing, nothing tastes better than a meal when you've been working out really hard and outdoors, especially this thing about like alfresco, like long distance exercise, and then a meal afterwards. It's just the best, most delicious thing you've ever tasted. It is. Yeah. But it's like, have that suffering that you know exactly how wonderful it is afterwards. (laughs) So looking back on this trip overall, how do you feel that it changed you as a person? A hundred percent changed me. I mean, the direction my life was going, uh, I thought that I knew what I wanted to do, what I, where I was going with it. And then after Henry died, I didn't see anything anymore. I didn't, I didn't see any direction at all. And so then setting off on this trip for me changed the way I viewed life, made a 180, the way I viewed the world, the way I viewed what I wanted from life. I think that death brings you also to that intense realization of, you know, the petty little things along the way are less important than the people around you and the people you love. And that's the most important thing at the end of the day is is love. That's it. There's nothing else important. The rest of it is just broth. It's just icing, really. And I think losing people brings that home to you very starkly. And then it also makes you think, well, you know, if I go tomorrow, will I have any regrets? Will I have done everything I wanted to do in life? And I'm living each day thinking, if I go tomorrow, will have I said everything straight today with the people I, I love? And have I said I love you to the people I love? Have I done the right things today and have I not left? So I, I try and now live each day thinking, I mean, it, you have to plan for the future, obviously. You, you can't live just from one day to the other. But I think it also teaches you to live, uh, taught me about living in the moment, like just appreciating every moment and being present for each moment and not always thinking of what I don't have or what I want, but thinking just how wonderful it is to be here right now doing this, you know, pedaling on this road or eating this meal or speaking with this friend and being there for that instead of, you know, always thinking of, what I want, what I don't have, where I want to be, what I want to do. And so then you're never there for the good things. And then when you look back and you think, oh, that was such a nice time. But when you're there, you're not thinking about it. And I think for me, that's possibly cycling around the world. You are very present in your immediate environment and just thinking from one meal to the next and peddling from one hour to the next. And so you really, it takes you into living very much in the present. And so being able to access that through life has been for me, that was life-changing to, to be able to learn how to do that every day. And so the lessons I learned on the road, as far as what I'm able to do, appreciating the little things, learning from everyone that I encounter, because that's the other thing I discovered is that everybody you meet has something they can teach you, something you don't know. 
and to not always think you know everything is a wonderful thing. So being able to learn from everyone you meet, having conversations with people. Yeah, it, it definitely changed my view of life and the way I wanted to live it. You are such an inspiring person. I'm so impressed with everything you've done. It really is mind-blowing. So thank you so much. You've been an amazing guest. Thanks for sharing your story. It's been really a pleasure to speak to you. Before you go, do you have a minute to do some uh, quick-fire questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. What is the one thing that every person should experience in their lifetime? Failing. Everyone should fail once in their lifetime. If you could teleport anywhere for just the day, where would you go and what would you do? Teleport. I would go uh, to a space station because I really want to see space. And I hope that in my lifetime it will become a norm because I, I just, I've seen most of the world. I really want to see space. What's the destination that's not so popular with tourists or perhaps relatively unknown that you would recommend? Hmm. South Italy. <laughs> everybody goes north (laughs) i would say go into the wilds of calabria and the national parks they're absolutely stunning there's nobody there and you have the best time and eat good food and the people are so nice and you would never imagine a million years it's the most unknown even italians don't know about it oh all right i'm gonna look that up the coast the mountains or the city and why where I am, which is right between the mountains and the coast. So I have the best of both. I have the sea in front of me and I have all the hiking trails behind me. And it's the perfect mix. You can find it near Nice as well. Nice has got the sea and then you've got the most incredible Alps around them. So if you can find an environment with both, because I would get bored of just one or the other. So we have to have both. Uh, what's one thing you never travel without? Duct tape. No one has given that answer. You have to elaborate. Duct tape can fix everything. Anything, anything can be solved with duct tape. This is just mostly I travel by bike, so I mean, never without duct tape. It has saved me on so, so, so many occasions. Um, what have you been surprised to learn about yourself through traveling? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I was surprised to discover how much I like people. That's a lovely answer. And what's the next destination on your bucket list? Indonesia. I have not been yet to Indonesia. I've lived all over Asia, but not Indonesia. So I have to take that one off the list. Some beautiful places there. I think also historically, there are some really ancient civilization ruins that I really want to see that they've found in the last few years. That sounds super interesting. So Indonesia is very interesting culturally and historically and for nature, obviously, and for cycling. So Oh, Juliana, thank you so much. And where can people find you on the internet? I have a website, Juliana Buring. That's my name, B-U-H-R-I-N-G dot com. Or Instagram, I'm two wheels, double trouble. Two as in the number two, not the word two. Two wheels, double trouble. Oh, thank you so much. That was great. And I mean, my God, you have so many stories to share. I feel like we didn't, you just scratched the surface. <laughs> um, I, there's so much food for thought. So I'm definitely going to absorb a lot of what you've said and think on it. Nice to speak to you. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.